A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. As you're listening to this podcast, I suspect you are a lover of all things Tudor, and not just Tudor, of course. Like me, you may also relish the wonderful range of historical fiction that so richly brings the 16th and 17th centuries to life. And I suspect that if you do like historical fiction, you have picked up a novel at some point or other by one of the period's best-known novelists, Philippa Gregory. Philippa Gregory, CBE, is one of the world's foremost historical novelists. She holds a PhD in 18th century literature from the University of Edinburgh and is a fellow of the Universities of Sussex and Cardiff. In 2016, she was given an Outstanding Contribution to Historical Fiction Award by the Historical Writers Association, and in 2018, Nielsen Bookscan gave her an Honorary Platinum Award to mark the vast scale of her lifetime sales. Philippa has been publishing since 1987. Her stories about the Tudors and the Plantagenets before them started life in 2001 with the title The Other Boleyn Girl. And in so many of her books, what stands out for me is the women. Their characters take centre stage. They are richly drawn. They're brought to life, whether engaged in the seemingly mundane or the evidently majestic. And so in many ways, it is no surprise to learn that Philippa has embarked on a 10-year project to write a history book about women spanning a thousand years of life in England. But what inspired her to write this as a work of fact rather than fiction? And how on earth has she drawn together a millennia of women's lives? And of course, what insights can she give us into the worlds of normal women in early modern England? It is an absolute pleasure to welcome her to not just the Tudors. Philippa Gregory, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. Thank you so much. Lovely to be with all of you, all the Tudors and all the others. <laughs> it's wonderful to have a chance to talk to you about this. This work of non-fiction, you obviously very well known for your wonderful works of historical fiction. I was actually just having a think about which one was my favourite. I think The Queen's Fool might do it, although I like the Wideacre novels very much. But people might perhaps be most familiar with The Other Boleyn Girl, because of course that became a film. But your latest work, Normal Women, is a piece of non-fiction. I think it's your second. And I wanted to ask you about the difference in research and writing processes for these genres and why you decided that this book in particular needed to be non-fiction. This book had to be non-fiction because it's a summary really of my life's work which has been looking at 
real women in real circumstances. And up until now, it's been satisfactory to tell their story as a fiction. So what we know of their life is fact on the page. And then what we know of their inner life is, of course, invented. And I just got to a point where I really thought that the lives of women is so little written is so disregarded. I have to spend at least half of my writing time as a novelist doing sometimes original research to find out about women who are quite famous. We still don't know, for instance, Anne Boleyn's date of birth. That just seems to me extraordinary. So we're not entirely sure about the birth order of the Boleyn girls, though we change our opinions at different times. Just It's extraordinary to me how even the most famous women are extraordinarily neglected. And so I wanted to write a book which spoke not just of the famous ones that are more and more explored these days, but the ones that never appear except in quite niche histories, histories of trades. We find women's names cropping up in ale brewing business or theatrical impresarios or women in crime. So you get them cropping up in histories of crime. But to actually say there's this massive breadth of life of 50% of the population of the medieval world that we never even mention. And even coming forwards to the modern world, women are not discussed. And if they end up as the people who are against the suffragettes, the women who did not want the vote, if they end up on the wrong side, you never hear about them at all because that's not the history that we as women want to tell each other. That's a very interesting point. So you've given us a sense there about the capaciousness of this because you've called it normal women, but it is also drawing on stories of, I suppose, aristocratic women and others. This is a wide-ranging investigation, isn't it? Absolutely. The point of the title, which is itself provocative, is to say it is normal to be both a queen and a prostitute. It is normal to be a highwaywoman. It is normal to be an ale seller. Women's lives should not be filleted in the service of a different sort of history. There's got to be some way of recognising that they are of national importance and that they are part of the national story be they ever so humble, be they ever so grand. And my bias has been towards the ones that we don't know about and the ones that are not written up. But I really wanted there to be a sense of representation of everybody. So I do talk about Elizabeth I, but I also talk about the people who suffered from her poor laws. You're covering a thousand years of history, which is remarkable. But I want to zero in, of course, on the early modern period because we're on not just the Tudors. And... Recovering women's lives in this period is fraught with difficulties. They are silent or silenced in the archives. So for this period in particular, how did you approach the challenge of getting at them? Mm -hmm. I mean, they're in the archives, but often described derogatively. So one of the things that really emerged for me really powerfully is how powerful and present women are in riot, unrest and protest. And it's called the Watt-Tyler Rebellion, but actually the leaders of the Watt-Tyler Rebellion are three women. You can find their names because they are listed and declared to be the leaders of the rebellion. So it's just going back to the point where women's role and presence is acknowledged Very often that's in criminal acts, which may perhaps skew it a little bit, but also it gives you the freedom to understand that women are engaging in criminal acts and then gives you the way to interrogate why. So the Watt-Tyler Rebellion is very much about attacks put on wives. 
a new tax, which, you know, what Tyler, in a sense, he's definitely there. I'm not saying he's not there. And he leads negotiations with the king's officers. But the people who are actually pulling the king's advisers out of the Tower of London and beheading them on the spot, and the people who are leaving the archbishop to be torn apart by the mob, are altogether two Londoner women and three women from Kent. And we know their names. And it's not just that women aren't necessarily there in the first records, because in this case they are, but it's in the second records and the third records where the subsequent historians drop their names and drop their presence and that's because I think that even your and my beloved early modern period is very much ploughed by the Victorian historians and so it's very much biased by a Victorian consciousness. So you're going through really a series of obstacles which have been put in one's way by the historians who have come after the first historians who made the record. Yes, I remember talking to a scholar who was working on the occult and magic in the Elizabethan period, who had found that most of the references to that with regard to Mary, Queen of Scots or Elizabeth were not in the calendared versions. I'm always talking about calendars, but for those who are coming fresh to this, those are the chronological precy of the state documents, because the Victorian men compiling them hadn't thought that they were politically valuable. So they didn't put those things in. Absolutely. And so often things that women say or things that women do are regarded as of no interest. I was talking to a friend of mine, a scholar, and she was looking for some documents written by a woman to her son. They were in the early struggles for Irish independence. And all of the letters were missing because they had been filed by a domestic archivist. Since they were letters from a woman, they were filed under cookery and recipes. And when the archive had been cleared out, they'd been thrown out. That's where women go missing from the record because people don't think that what they say is important. Even when they start writing for themselves, you literally don't get it. So you've drawn on some of the best new research and you have organised the book into chronological chapters which are then subdivided into themes and I want to explore some of those themes including protest in a second and the themes are particular I should say to each age rather than running through every era. What inspired this structure and did it lead to some difficult decisions about whose stories to tell? Absolutely. There was an agonising period at the beginning where I went, is it going to be themes or is it going to be chronologically through time? And what really helped me with that was the extraordinarily grand ambition that I had, which was to write something which could contribute to a national history. Winston Churchill didn't go, how will I fit the concept of marriage into this? He went, we'll start at the beginning and we'll go as far as we want to go. And I went, I want to start at 1066 because I think that's the time that, in a sense, patriarchy invades England. It's not just the Normans. It's the idea that land is inherited from a man to his son. It's the idea that women shouldn't really inherit land at all. It's the idea that women have no place in law. They have no rights in law whatsoever, and the whole idea of feudalism that whoever a man is, his wife is under him. So you could actually be a slave's wife. You could be lower than a slave, but only if you're a woman, if you were married to a slave. I think the Normans are huge in terms of setting a pattern which oppresses women even up to today. Extraordinary change. So I started at 1066 and then I went, well, I stop, given that you could 
presumably go on till yesterday. And I went, I'm going to stop in 1994 when women first got the right to be ordained in the Church of England because that is, in a sense, equality before God for the first time ever since the plague when women were allowed to hear confessions and give absolution to dying men as an emergency measure during the plague. So it's just by setting that it's going to be chronology, already some themes come out. And I went, I'm going to have the themes as they emerge to me. And it's, that's the bit where it's a bit more fiction, as you know how historians write fiction, because it's literally what struck me as the most important developments for normal women, working women and aristocratic women in this period. And the other thing which was fun, which I know you will love, is like not saying I'm going to do periods by reigns because that's male time. <laughs> Just a bit of fun. I'm going to do periods by, in a sense, developments for women, what really makes a difference to women in each section. So we start, for instance, the 19th century section. We start at 1850 with all of the reforms that happened then, the Married Women's Property Act, the change of infant custody. And we start in the early medieval period. The 1348 section starts with the Black Death and takes in what Tyler's revolt. Periods by reigns is male time. I can see that being framed and put on walls and classrooms. That's brilliant. It is male time. And it's that idea that the epoch is defined by the man as the head of the household. We know that puts a bias in before you even start. And I think you're right about the extent to which this structure, especially with regard to inheritance, actually you could go on till yesterday because whilst most of us will divide our property equally between our children if you look at the aristocracy, it still very much goes down the line of male primogeniture. The policy of unequal pay comes in after the Black Death. There's this boom after the plague years where wages rise because there's so few people to do the work. And then in reply to that, there's pushback. The employers and the landlords and the aristocrats push wages down. And one of the ways they push wages down most effectively then and subsequently is by pushing women's wages down and, in a sense, encouraging men to expect a male differential because then the male workers assist pushing the women's wages down. And that's a legacy from the early medieval period that we still experience today. You can actually see it happening right the way from about 1350. One distinctive feature of the early modern period in England and Scotland and across Europe really is that we have a number of women who became Queen's Regnant. Did you find any evidence that having a woman on the throne had an impact on the lives of ordinary women. Was there a positive trickle-down effect in any way? Yes, in the court, because you have far more jobs available for women in the court because they're not just being the married queen's companions, they're being the reigning monarch's companions. So there's a lot of authority and privilege which does trickle out to them in that sense. Yes, in that when you have a woman on the throne, but not necessarily, you might get a bit more interest in clothes and fashion and decorative arts, which women work in. So you have a stimulus to craft there. But the absolute measure is that do reigning women, whether it's Margaret Thatcher or Elizabeth I, do they promote women into proper jobs? And the answer with both of them is no. Do they pass legislation which advantages women from their particular knowledge of how difficult it is to be a woman and rising? And the answer there also is no. So it's not enough 
our policy of promoting women into, say, director's posts in companies or in leading positions in industry or any industry, it's not enough to put a woman in there. She has, when she gets there, to act like a sister. Let's talk now about some of your themes. The big one for the 16th century is religious change. You discuss the effects of the Henrician Reformation, which you say secularised and sexualized women. Can you tell us a bit more about this? It's so huge, I can tell you about bits of it. I think by abolishing the nunneries, you get rid of a paid category of virgins. You can't be a virgin as a job anymore. It's not a respectable calling anymore. Martin Luther actually says that he regards virgins as non-women. You're not a woman until you've married. There's that huge blow to the idea of choosing to be celibate as a woman. So the religion, in a sense, reinforces the marriage, and the marriage at the time is clearly oppressive. So all of the rituals are those actually slavery rituals, and they are all about putting a woman in a man's keeping. She can't earn her own money after marriage. She can't keep her own money after marriage. Even the children she bears are her husband's and are in his ownership. So... That's a very damaging step for women. In addition to that, the rhetoric of the translation introduced into the church language and then into wider language for the first time, the phrase weaker vessel. It doesn't actually occur in the Greek or the Latin. It's Tyndale who invents it as a way of amplifying something which is in Peter's letters. And it just catches on. And I think it's a profoundly derogatory term for women. I think the vessel implies the womb or the vagina, absolutely transparently. The weaker, I think, implies that it's a bit of a leaky old pot, which I think really builds into the increasing anxiety about women's sexuality and, as Leah says, the horrors of the female genital. And then Tyndale also writes, it crops up again in the homily on matrimony, which Elizabeth orders to be read in every church. And you just get this idea that women are a domestic artefact, a vessel, a weak one, a not very satisfactory domestic one, who is there in the household to probably contain the male seed and can't even be relied upon to do that very well. So it's a really powerful image which enters our language then, the Reformation, because of Reformation theology. And it's still, you can look it up in a dictionary today and you will find the explanation of it as a synonym for women. It sounds a little bit nitpicky to worry about it, but actually I think it's hugely influential in terms of how subsequent church writings regard women. The Reformation's good for women, if we were giving it a review, giving it stars. (laughs) It's good for women in that it encourages literacy. So that's brilliant. It encourages a sense that you can approach God without a priest to intercede for you. So it foregrounds women's relationship with God and relationship with text. And that's, of course, incredibly precious to women then and thereafter. But because of the nature, then Elizabeth liked celibate church. It's priests who go into the church. It's the Reformed Church of England does not open its doors to women preachers. So you get them in the sex, but you don't get them in the Church of England. And I think the Church of England really drifts towards the inbuilt misogyny of the Church of Rome really fast and stays there for centuries. Yes, there's an opportunity to have a very different conception of the relationship between men and women via V. God. And as you say, 
It's not till 1994, perhaps, that that gets sorted out. You give some brilliant examples as well of women who resisted religious change. Can you talk a little bit about those? One of the ways that I decided to treat it was to treat women who died for their faith in the same chapter, side by side, regardless of whether it was Roman Catholic or Reform, whether it was Protestant. Because from my point of view, not taking sides very much on the religious question one way or t'other, what was interesting was the fact that it mattered so much to women that they were prepared to die in the most painful ways for it. And some of them were handed over to the authorities for execution, burning as heretics, by their husbands. I mean, you really get an idea of the sort of brutality and the sort of utilitarian nature of some of these marriages when you see that rather than defend his wife against a charge of heresy, a man would hand her over. It doesn't happen very often, but it's a bit chilling when it does. Equally, there are some couples who choose to die together and who clearly pursue a faith which is so important to them that they choose to die together. But it means that I've always been very sympathetic towards the case for Mary I, sometimes known as Bloody Mary, but when you list the Protestant martyrs, it is rather chilling. I have to say that women who go to the stake pregnant and who deliver their babies into the flames, that happens at least twice. You just realise when you look at the killings for religion, it's a very salutary experience because it's such a different time from ours. And it's so easy when we're talking about the things that we both experience lack of education for girls, lack of opportunities for girls, being squeezed out of the workplace, all of those things where you can see a modern parallel. Thank heavens, in our country, no longer would you see that sort of real brutality of religion which bears down very hard on the women in particular. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. form of protest when it came to religion was religious exile and typically we read about the stories of men who took their families abroad but you talk about the roles of women did you find that women could be the driving force in choosing exile interestingly especially i think in protestant and reformation there's a lot of women who clearly are the driving force in exile and also i think perhaps because there's a sort of merchant class of women who are attracted by reform. So they've got the money and they're used to running the show and they understand about transport and I think they tend to go. There's a couple of women who become Calvin's clerks and secretaries who go with him and who pursue education with him. So you can really see why they would go. And then there's a lot of women on the Roman Catholic side of the coin who go into exile so that they can go to nunneries. So in a way, the ones who are more influential are the ones for England 
Ireland are the ones who go into exile during the Reformation, improve their education, clearly improve their independence, get an understanding of the nation, which is not at all deferential because they're in defiance to the Roman Catholic Queen, and then come back and become part of the court of Elizabeth and part of the nation of Elizabeth, and then are almost universally disregarded by the Church of England, who find them too argumentative and too troublesome and too difficult to incorporate them in any way except as people who might clean the church. The flower rota emerges, I think. You mentioned earlier the earlier century of the 14th century and Wat Tyler, but we have women in the 16th and 17th centuries very much emerging as protesters in spheres besides religion. You show that women were often the primary defenders of food and they're leading the way, protecting the gathering and the hunting and the fishing rights on common land when enclosure was sweeping across England and they lead the way on action when it comes to food shortages. Can you share some examples of those who were beseeching or screeching to keep their families alive. And do you think we should regard their actions as success even when authorities shut them down? Did they have an impact? They have a terrific impact. And the bigger riots, the food riots especially, have an almost instantaneous impact in that there's a compromise worked out on the ground. So there are probably many more riot-like experiences that we never even hear about because the magistrates come out. E.P. Thompson wrote about it years ago, but it's very much this social theatre of riots. So bread prices go up or wheat prices go up or wheat is being exported or other food stuffs are being exported out of the country and the women are in the marketplace buying the food and selling the food so they are the first people to know that's what's happening they are the ones who are primarily responsible for being the breadwinner literally getting the bread and so they are the first to respond and usually what happens is they refuse to pay the price that's being asked and then they threaten to steal or break or damage or there's a sort of a gathering of an angry mob and shouting and in theory what happens then and what certainly happens up until the early 18th century is that the magistrates come out from their big townhouses or come in from their country houses they're sent for and say what's going on here and by and large the magistrates know that everything works all right provided that food is not exported from a hungry area and provided prices don't rise beyond what people can afford. So often they set the prices or they tell the merchants not to export them. There's a very big riot in Essex where the magistrates have a whip round with the townsmen and the major merchants and they buy wheat at the high price and sell it to the poor at the correct price. So they actually take the economic loss themselves. That particular riot, it's at Malden, there's a lovely essay on it, goes to the Privy Council because it's so unruly that they're trying to export grain from the harbour. And it goes to the Privy Council and the Privy Council set a maximum price for grain and say that food can't be exported. So the riot is completely successful in its ends, which is to set a fair price. It's not a revolution. It's not trying to overthrow the market or the merchants or anything. It's just trying to get workable capitalism working. And interestingly, in that one, it all goes quiet for a few months and then the merchants export grain again because they are being merchant-like and seeking at the best profit available. And there's another riot. And this time, this rather wonderful woman, 
Mrs Carter, who was a butcher's wife and fell on hard times. She led the riot the first time. The second time, she calls up everybody and says she's leading an official riot. And she goes round on a horse and summons people as a commander. She calls herself captain. And the riot is put down very violently, very thoroughly, and she's hanged. In the sense, any time it becomes a threat to national order or it becomes too much of a threat the authorities really bear down very hard and they're bearing down on an unarmed hungry deferential people and the leaders are almost always killed when it's more about setting the local market price it tends to be more successful so there will be i am sure thousands of riots like that that we never even hear about because they're just dealt with locally nobody even keeps a diary about it one of the way that women protest is through the use of petitions. And this is an interesting development because it plays into this increasing degree of literacy and using these written petitions. Did they differ in any way to petitions used by men or is this just a form of legitimising discourse that women can use just as well as men can? Yeah, petitions come up a bit later, round about the period of the Restoration or during the uh, Parliament years. They're a favoured use of men and they come into favour, I think, in the 16th, 17th century because women are starting to be more literate. So they are starting to see that writing your complaint and signing it is more effective than going to your local landlord. The first petition that we have that goes to the Cromwell government that is thought to be a women's petition is identified as a women's petition by the historians, not by me. I think so, but I don't know, because the language is very deferential. So it's very much, my Lord, please be so kind as to. And it's very emotional, so it says that what they're frightened is Irish papists coming over from Ireland and spitting their children and roasting them at the fire. All of these very, apparently, what is believed to be typical female fears. Certainly, the petitioners at the time thought there was an advantage to saying the petitions came from women. So it's like novels which are written by a lady. You can see there's a real reason for a man to write it pretending to be a woman because that's what the market likes, but you can't be sure. And I think interrogating the text is very suspect. I don't think you can be sure that you can see gendered text until people are much clearer about what might be an authentic women's voice than they are at a time where people are still defining the nature of women with the most extraordinary examples. So the nature of women is defined as the Greeks define it for centuries and it's clearly nothing like any woman that you and I have ever met. It's so interesting also in terms of the idea of shaping up those strategies of petition, how to frame one's complaint. I remember Susan Brimhall's work looking at women trying to get poor relief and talking about being overburdened with small children. And it's clear that women did know how to create the narrative that was going to best produce the result. And that is, you play to female tropes. You play to the sense of helplessness in order to try and get the money, you know. So I think that it certainly could have been women. It's obviously not clear in this example, but it doesn't suggest they're their only concerns. It suggests that women know how to deploy those concerns that men think are their concerns in order to get what they need. Absolutely. I mean, I think being a woman, even today, is a performative art. And we learn it 
really early on and we're taught it absolutely explicitly by men's writings and by men's response to the things we do. So there's never a woman who turns up at the Magdalen Hospital hoping for a bed for the night and food, but that she was the victim of a rape or that she fell once and only once. It's literally people who have been working prostitutes join the queue and know that what they have to do is to project an image of innocence or penitence. And the instructions to the organisers of the hospital is the Madeline Houses is that they should prefer virgins who've been raped or innocents who have fallen only once because prostitutes are inveterate and you give them bed for night, you feed them up, you get them healthy and you send them out into the world again and they do not go into domestic service which is what the Magdalen Houses are intending their graduates to do. They go back on the street because you're paid more doing that than in domestic service. Talking about financial matters, can we think about the poor laws that you mentioned earlier, both in the late Tudor period and the Stuart poor laws? Do you feel that this legislation worsened attitudes to women? Did it make their lives worse? And is there any legislation that made women's lives better in this period? It's a gloomy period for women. It does make their lives worse, largely because it treats the household as one economic unit, which really justifies paying women less than men because you assume that they're going to grow food or gather food or do little bits of work as well so they don't need a proper wage and that their job is also at home. So you start getting, it's not called the breadwinner wage yet, but you start getting this rhetoric that male wages have to be at a certain level, whereas women's wages are extra. They don't determine the well-being of the household. So it's bad on that sense. Most of the poor laws include conditions for movement and conditions about work, and they really bear down very badly on women who are no longer allowed to leave their parish unless they have the address of the place of work they're going to, which if you think in a country without a post office and without mail, without even maps of roads, it's just impossible. If you can't go on the tramp looking for work, as men can be licensed to do, then you're never going to leave home, which means that you're always going to be stuck under the landlord, under the husband or father, and there is no possibility of personal freedom. So the limitation of movements explicitly for women is, of course, terribly damaging. The ruling in parishes about whether you have to take in someone or not if they come and collapse on your doorstep bears down very heavily on women who may move away from the known exploitation at their home to the unknown exploitation of somewhere else. And if they get pregnant, they can just be bundled over the parish border unendingly until they die. The poor laws are extremely harsh on women and extremely harsh on runaway slaves and escaped slaves, especially women, because they cannot show a parish where they can draw poor relief at all. So there's a whole class of women who sit outside such poor relief as there is. In terms of if you get in the workhouse, of course it's horrible, but you might be inadequately fed and you will be overworked, but you will be able to work. But you certainly will be separated from your children and your husband. And so the chances of seeing them again are very slight. It would be very remarkable to be able to get a family back together after being separated in the workhouse and starved and overworked. The poor laws are very hard on the poor. They're not to provide for the poor, they're to prevent unrest. And in that sense, they are really targeted against women. 
There's a couple more themes I'd like to pick up on if we have time. One is about women's work in medicine. You talk a lot about women's work more generally, but in this one we see that women are involved in herbalism and surgery and midwifery and all sorts of things. Can you paint a portrait of practice over this period of time, from the late 15th century into the 17th century, and the changes that occurred to women's roles in medicine? To start off with, in the early medieval period, women are more better known as healers and physicians and surgeons and nurses than men because it's not very well paid. There's no germ theory, there's no understanding of what's happening. There is a tradition which women healers hand down, very often mother to daughter or women in the same family. So you get quite a lot of parents and children actually named in the records as surgeons. Interestingly to me, 70% of the witchcraft trials are against men, that witchcraft is more identified than men with women at this period. But I think everybody would regard witchcraft and healing work and herbalism and alchemy and cunning work and surgery as all part of the sort of intervening with life and death and illness issues and loss issues, which is all the same sort of industry. Women specialise more in the medical side of it and nursing side of it. And of course, they are wet nurses and people who tend to babies and midwives. And since there's a very strict banning of men from midwifery at that time, in a sense, they've got a head start in the business of medicine because they've got to be there at the birth. Any other sex cannot be there at the birth. It has to be someone who's a midwife and a woman. She's licensed by a bishop. She is a person of some authority. So in witchcraft trials and potency trials and in fatherhood claims, it's women's authority which is turned to because of that particular craft that they start off with. When, round about the Restoration, round about the middle of the 17th century, you get a sort of professionalisation of medicine, which is that I believe men find that if they come at medicine with a claim to expertise, they can scoop up the richer patients. And it is all about fees, and it is all about, ultimately, technology also. But men command this status and then they say they form the Royal College of Physicians and they say that it's open to everybody who's a doctor except you've got to have attended university and women of course can't attend university so it's turned into the Royal College is a male-only institution and they then start to prosecute anyone who calls themselves physicians or doctors who is not in the college i.e all the women who have been doing a reasonably good job up until that point. So then you get women, as in so many other industries, squeezed out of the research, squeezed out of the technology if it's expensive to buy. So the Royal College has members who have forceps and who can deliver babies that are stuck high in the womb. So you start getting the idea that men can be midwives. Indeed, they'll probably be better midwives than the other ones. And the Royal College does this real sort of black ops propaganda in which they name women doctors as hedge witches or bunglers or muddlesome old herbalists or know-nothing. And it's an absolute deliberate policy by them to boost the exclusivity of their own organisation. And I think it is that which actually creates the impression that witchcraft is a female speciality. 
So women move out of medicine, which was a female speciality, get pushed into witchcraft as a female speciality, which really opens the door to the witchcraft trials and the terrible abuse, violent abuse of women during the witchcraft trials. The dominance of men in medicine is an absolute disaster in terms of women in childbirth because as soon as it becomes a tradition that a man is a professional doctor and can have more than one patient and can go from one patient to another in childbirth, whereas the midwife went in with you to your bedroom and stayed there with you however long it took till the baby was delivered, the men doctors are immediately transmitting disease. And so you get this rise in particularly puerperal infection, but all sorts of childbirth diseases, which is not fixed until the gentleman doctors finally agree some 20 years after the discovery of germ theory that they will wash their hands. Thank you very much. So it's a pretty tragic story, both for patients and for women practitioners. That's absolutely fascinating. So just to end then, Let's try, as it were, to conclude our survey of early modern women. And there's so much more in your book over the thousand years you cover, but even on the 200 odd years that we're interested in. Overall, do we need to conclude that this is a period in which women's lives were generally getting worse? Or am I simplifying too much? It includes the so-called golden age. So immediately after the plague, women's lives get dramatically better. And because there's an incredible shortage of labour, they move into crafts and guilds and industries and they move into landowning and they make some industries very much their own. So there's a bit of a thrilling time, which we can rightly celebrate, but then there is the pushback, which comes from about the late... 15th century onwards, where the demands of an expanding economy, the requirements to build empire, the greed of everybody, and the increasing sense, I think, of competition between men and women workers and men and women entrepreneurs and men and women industrialists, early industrialists, tends to mean that the male guilds and then the male landowners, even the male workers, start to feel that they have to defend their interests against the competition of women, instead of seeing actually that where the tension is ultimately going to be seen to lie is between the landowners and the landless and the employers and the employed. But of course, I would say that because I'm a woman now. So in a thousand years from now, I don't know that somebody won't be sitting saying to a hologram of you as a hologram of me, oh, that wasn't the problem. It was something else altogether. But that we can't know. But certainly if you look back from now to then, I think what is a really interesting time of change for women when they make extraordinary advances and when they start to get pushed back. Well, thank you so much for speaking to me about your book. This is a monumental work and should enter people's libraries. And it is coming out in just a few weeks' time so people can already buy it. Thank you, Philippa, so much for your time. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for inviting me on. Thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit and also to my researcher Esther Arnott and my producer Rob Weinberg. We're always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on 
X, formerly known as Twitter, at NotJustTudors. And please do consider rating, ranking, bestowing multiple stars and commenting on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.